their Mileton Marathon and guests to Mileton Marathon. My name is Rob, and we are indeed getting the podcast going again. Why are we getting the podcast going again? Mainly because there's lots of cool stuff going on at Mileton Marathon. Uh, we got a lot of really kick-ass athletes. We got a really a lot of really cool coaches, and we're gonna tell some stories today. We're gonna focus the episode on the Boston Marathon. Post Boston, we had. 48 mile to marathon athletes representing in Boston. We had some very, very, very good performances from coaches and athletes alike. So today we're going to chat with Ellis Gray, mile to marathon athlete, and Trevor Hoffbauer, a mile to marathon coach. And we're going to hear all about their Boston marathon experiences. So I'll warn you right now, it's a long episode. Um, I was going to try to keep each chat to a reasonable length. That didn't happen. So uh, this might be a, something you listen to in a couple parts. And let's show up for like a long run. But it's up to you how you listen to it. We're just giving you the opportunity to listen to it. So, um, yeah, that's my spiel. Let's get into some chats. First up, Ellis, let's hear all about your Boston Marathon experience, Mr. Gray. I like your backdrop there. Thank you. We've been getting out of my expensive, expensive wall art. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful bike. Yeah. Um, no, I haven't gotten out. I'm signed up for the Fondo in September though. So nice, man. Well, I mean, that's that's hopefully going to get me out on it a couple of times this summer. All summer. Maybe we'll do an impromptu triple crown again. Yeah. I wanted to ask you actually, like last year when we did this triple crown, you and Ben and myself, how much like, how how much had you been on the bike before that day? <laughs> like zero, <laughs> or nothing of substance at least. That's maybe cool. like a, a couple Stanley Park loops, maybe one up through UBC, but nothing of any substance. Gosh, because that's a big like that's a big day distance wise, but it's a huge day climbing wise. Like <laughs> honestly, I think it was good marathon training because it was just a total mental battle. <laughs> I knew that was what was going to get me through it. Oh, not man. my not my bike skills, just my <laughs> mental fortitude. <laughs> that, that's true. Well, you you have those in spade. You have a mental fortitude in spade, which is one of your one of your your best assets as an athlete. But yeah, that day was big because like I I had cycled a bit. Like I was, it I had probably cycled more than you and Ben that day. And I remember going up Cyprus on the end, and that was a death march. And it was like middle July. It was hot as hell. I was dying up that thing oh. yeah no it wasn't fun i think like i mean i drank a lot of fluids i had two water bottles we stopped for gatorade we stopped for coffee i didn't have to go to the bathroom once <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's an indication of <laughs> how hard my body was working i ate so many snicker bars that day and yeah uh, and we almost killed ben yeah we did but cross it off the list and i don't go. know <laughs> if i need to do that again that was like, you know, you're broken when you get dropped on the downhills, and that was what was happening with Ben. <laughs> he yeah. on the downhills. He was just a corpse on a bike by the end. Oh man, that was that was a good day. That was a good day. It was a great day. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of good days, what we're gonna do? Um, what what I wanted to do today was kind of just talk about your experience at the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, we're gonna get we're gonna get the podcast going again a little bit, and we want to have um, you know coach perspective but also athlete perspective um so i talked to trevor uh he's gonna be on here too talked about his his boston marathon experience and um you as an athlete that we've been working with for a long time and who had a 
I think you had a great Boston race. Um, so I want to, I just want to talk about that. So you cool with that? Sweet. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, cool. So if you like, if you know, and always we can edit. So if you say anything that before <laughs> we can just, we can just edit it or I can Lovely. keep that in my back pocket for me yeah. or something. Um, exactly. That's <laughs> the world we live in these days. Remember that thing you did 30 years ago? Yeah, you're not allowed to do that now. So, uh, yeah, you're canceled, bud. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's start. Are you cool? Yep. All right. All um, let's start by just introducing yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, I've, I've already done an intro probably. This might be like the third intro of the podcast. Uh, I haven't done it in a while. Uh, just introduce yourself with a few words. Uh, maybe talk about, you know, your running background, how you got into running, your, your athletic background in general. Um, just a little bit about Ellis Gray. Hit it. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, I'm Ellis. I'm based in Vancouver, um, but I grew up in Victoria. Um, really was a big rugby player growing up, um, but speed was always one of my, my strongest assets. Um, I wasn't necessarily a, a physical daunting specimen, but I, I certainly had the speed. Um, so once I said goodbye to my rugby career, I was kind of looking for something to fill that competitive void. And I've always been somebody that has, you know, been into setting goals and, and getting after big goals. And Boston Marathon seems like something really cool to, to say that you've done. So when I said goodbye to rugby, I decided that I wanted to try and run the Boston Marathon. So that was in 2017. Um, and that's really where I started taking running seriously. Um, I think I got like an A6 run plan online and put in a couple of my details in terms of like the fastest five or 10 K that I'd run, how old I was. And it computed the fastest marathon time that it thought I could run and gave me a training program to go along with that. I ran my first marathon in May of 2018. Uh, that was BMO and it was a complete disaster. <laughs> uh, I'd never really experienced hitting the wall until that race, but you know, I didn't have a fueling strategy my pacing was all over the place. Um, but I think that experience really kept me motivated. Um, I think I had a vision of running that as my first marathon and qualifying for Boston right there. Um, and obviously that didn't happen, um, but just kept the hunger alive um, and managed to qualify for Boston on my third attempt uh, in Eugene, which is really exciting and was gearing up to run in 2020. And then of course the world shut down um, because of the pandemic, um, which was tough because it meant that uh, there was so much uncertainty. I thought that potentially Boston was going to get pushed to fall of 2020. That didn't happen. It ended up running in fall of 2021. Um, but my qualifying time wouldn't have stood up to get into that very competitive smaller field. Um, so then 2022 was the year, five years later. Um, so it was a really great experience just to be able to you know, have that five years that I've been working towards and, and cross that one off the list, um, because that was really what got me into running in the first place and, and kept me motivated and kept me at it, uh, especially during those wet, rainy, miserable Vancouver winter months that we're all so accustomed to here. Yeah, for sure. Those wet, rainy, it's always tough to, tra to train, especially because you spend so much time up at Whistler um because you're also you have the big skiing in your life and it's funny you mentioned that you're not a uh, a very imposing physical presence on the rugby field but i mean when it when it comes to running on the track man you you look uh 
you're pretty solid out there on the track and you're definitely your speed is one of your strengths and it's one of those things where you have that like very um understated speed that's like where when you're running fast you can't tell you're running fast it's just like maybe your turnover is a little bit quicker but you're one of those athletes where i look at and like i'm like i have no idea how fast alice is running you could be running a 330k you could be running a 350k and that's a compliment uh, it's just how it's, it's effortless and it's just how you move which is really really cool and i remember i remember meeting you for the first time uh when you when you came back i think you you had been away and then you'd come back to vancouver to work in the pacific center store yeah um, and i was uh i was an ambassador at that store at that time and i remember amy was like yeah we're getting alice back and everyone's like alice woo, we love alice yeah 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 <laughs> i remember talking to you and it was a couple weeks before bebo and just had a little chat and you had the plan and i was like all right man let's, let's see and then it didn't it didn't go so well for you um but it, it, the marathon can be humbling um especially when you're like a young fit person who's athletic you're like yeah I'll take care of this I'll take care of this so when you ran that when you ran that first marathon where did it all go wrong and and what was going on through your head when it's going wrong in a marathon yeah I think it it really started to go wrong on that sneaky hill coming out of Jericho where you come up onto West Forth that's where I just didn't feel super well um, but I managed to hold on until I got to the bottom of the Broad Street Bridge. And then that incline coming up the Broad Street Bridge, that's where I just couldn't will my legs to move any further anymore. And I started walking at that point. Uh, but I knew that I had friends cheering at the bottom of the Broad Street Bridge. So that managed to get me moving for a little bit. Um, but it was pretty stop and start, uh, especially on the loneliness of the, of the seawall um, to get around to the finish line. But yeah, I'd say kind of around kilometer 30. And I remember that interaction that we first had and you were kind of giving me some advice and you said, you know, if you can get to 30 with fight in your legs, then, then you're good to go. Um, and I certainly didn't have the fight in my legs come kilometer 30 on that day. Um, but you know what? I almost felt similar in Boston. Fast forward four years. Uh, I was worried. I was getting close to 30 and I was feeling really tired. So kind of a full circle experience there. Um, but just, you know, the, the ability to be able to power through that now five years, four years down the road, um, despite my legs feeling really sore, really tired, um, just that mental aspect of continuing to push through and getting across the finish line. Yeah. And that's something that's super important as an athlete, right? It's like you train your physical self to handle, you train your mental self to handle it. And it's nice to know what's going to happen And that, that BMOC wall, it, it's savage. It's absolutely savage. That course, even this weekend I was watching, I was like, I don't. I don't like this course. <laughs> it's like, sit on the, sit on Especially the people that run so much in Vancouver, right? They're, we we kind of take it for granted. I mean, it's beautiful, but we run it all the time. Uh, so you're not really distracted by the scenery at that point. You're just really in it. And more often than not, you're kind of alone. There aren't that many people cheering you on. So yeah, it, uh, it can get pretty dark <laughs> along that backstretch of the seawall. It'll be the longest seawall run you ever do in your life. It'll come around 100%. and like, I forgot this part existed. No, I don't want to do this anymore. Call the Coast Guard. Um, so between your first marathon and obviously qualifying for Boston, which you did in Eugene, which was a fantastic race. I remember that. Um, yeah. What changed as a runner? Um, what did you do to take control to make sure you qualified for Boston and then obviously prepare for Boston? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing was structure and being in Vancouver and signing up to be a part of the mile to marathon community. I think a having that structured, 
coaching environment was great and, uh, you know, much better than just putting in some stats into an online app and spitting out a training program. Um, but actually having a training program that was adaptive and specific to my needs and, and my goals and what I wanted to accomplish um, and having an amazing community to run with, I think it can be really hard going out and doing a marathon build solo, um, but having people to run with and, you know, push you, pull you along, um, I think really helps. So I would say that was the biggest thing. I think just getting some more experience under my belt as well with the marathon, um, going into a marathon, you really don't know what to expect for your first one. Um, so I think just building upon that, I, I learned more and more about myself as a marathon runner with every marathon that I accomplish. Um, so as I've done more, I think I take bits and pieces from each and it's helped me turn into a more well-rounded marathon runner. Um, you know, you never really know what you're going to get, but I think having those experience um, can really help me regardless of what gets thrown my way on race day. Yeah. And I think that's a super important lesson is like, no matter what happens on race day, it is a learning experience and you can take that and move it forward. Right. Sometimes when you don't have a good race, it's like, I, what went wrong and how can I fix this? Um, and you know, and I'm not saying things were going wrong in your first one, things went wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but then, you know, as you get going and you kind of fine tune it and as you get faster, it's like the little things make more and more and more difference. Um, so along the way, you go to Eugene, uh, what year was it? That was 2019, right? That was 2019. Yeah. April of 2019. Yeah. And obviously the goal is to go sub three. The goal is to, um, qualify for the Boston marathon. And I like to ask this question, like when people have goals and, and, and they achieve their goals, it's like, at what point in the race did you know you were going to do it? And how did it feel when you crossed that finish line? Yeah, I think I knew with maybe about 5k to go. Um, I ran a pretty substantial negative split at Eugene um, because I just wanted to go out really cautiously um, and, and build up for a big finish. Uh, but I knew with about 5k to go that as long as I could maintain the current pace that I was at, um, that I would come in under three hours. And at that point I was feeling good. Um, it didn't feel like I was struggling for every single step. Like I had, you know, some reserve left in the tank. Um, so then it was just a, a really enjoyable experience for those last 5k as, as much as the last 5k of a marathon can be. Um, but I think, you know, at that time you didn't finish at Hayward, you finished uh, at Outson because Hayward was under construction. Um, and just that experience of, of running into the stadium um, and having a whole bunch of people there sitting in the seats cheering you on was a pretty surreal experience. Um, and I could really enjoy it knowing that I had somewhat of a buffer. I finished in 257, I think 15. Um, so I had a good buffer. So could, could really enjoy that and didn't feel like I was watch watching the entire time as I was coming towards the finish line. Yeah. I remember seeing that. I think, I think Amy probably took the video, your partner, Amy, and you ran and you had your hands in the air and uh, it's, it's a triumphant feeling. Those, those ones, when you, when you get that and you hit your goal. So you check that box in Eugene and then it's, and then obviously stuff happens in the world um but come 2022 it's time to it's time to train for boston so heading into boston you have progressed as an athlete um you're you've just been you've been committed worked hard and consistently put in the work for several several years now so heading into boston what was your what was your goal what were you looking to get from the boston experience i mean i was just excited to be going to boston in the first place 
Um, but as you mentioned, I had made a lot of progress as a runner over the last couple of years. I ran Berlin in September of 2021 and ran a 2.47, so improved my PB by about 10 minutes. Um, so I felt like I had a lot of confidence going into, into Boston, um, but I also felt like I had a little bit more to prove. I, I finished Berlin and, and felt like, you know, maybe I had left something out on that course and that 245 was, was the ultimate goal. Um, so that's what I went into to Boston with, um, to run sub 245. Um, and then as we got closer to, to Boston and, and kind of checked in and where I was at with my fitness, uh, we started to discuss potentially in the realm of, of 240 and, and maybe even going below that, um, which, you know, scared me a little bit. Um, I definitely didn't know if I would be able to, to go out that, at that speed and be able to maintain it, um, but definitely went in with the goal of running under two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you, you ran really well in Berlin and along the way you had just crushed all your other per personal bests. Uh, you went under 116 at the first half, um, your 5k, your 10k, everything had just, you know, you just continued to drop those times and get on the, the Boston build. Um, and your Boston build went really well. And like, like we were no, mentioning before, you know, it's, it's those crappy Vancouver, British Columbia winters. Um, when, it, when it is a particularly, you know, when it is a bad day outside or you don't want to do your training, do you have any tricks, motivation? What does get you out the door? I think for me, I'm somebody that's like really extrinsically motivated by having something on the calendar. Uh, so knowing that I'm signed up to run Boston, I obviously want to perform well um, and live up to my expectations of what I think I should be able to do. So I think that's really what gets me out the door because I know that if I skip out on workouts, um, that over time, that's going to have an impact on, on how I run on the day at the event. Um, so I think for me, that's, that's the biggest thing that, that keeps me going is just knowing that I want to perform well. And in order to do that, uh, even if I really don't want to, I have to get out the door and, and do that workout. Um, and I think like the holidays was particularly tough for me up in Whistler, where it was the coldest I've ever seen it there. There was snow, you know, I was running in minus 30 degrees. Um, so I think, you know, after that, I knew that if I could get out in those conditions, that there was really nothing that could stop me from getting out and getting my training in. Yeah, that's, that's, I love that. I love that kind of perspective on it, realizing like, you know, weather's not going to be perfect, but just getting out there and doing it, it just gives you that affirmation. Like I'm doing this right. I'm controlling what I need to control. Were there one or two sessions within your build where maybe you're like, okay, like this is going well, or like, I know I'm on track or like there, is there any sessions that kind of stick out in your mind as you're building towards Boston or like maybe like a day where it was just brutal and, but you, you still got her done. Yeah. I think one of the workouts that sticks out in my mind was when I was traveling for work and I was in New York and that was a tough time because it was challenging to be able to balance, you know, working in events and, and having to be, you know, working full on to execute an event while trying to manage a marathon build at a, at a pivotal time of my marathon build as well. Um, but I was able to get out for a big progression run in Central Park. Uh, I think it ended up being around 32K, but did two full loops of, of Central Park, which was great training for, for Boston because you get those rolling hills. Um, and I think you know, when I looked at the full 32K workout, um, I was just over four minutes a kilometer. 
Um, so right where I really wanted to be at that point in time. So I think for me that that affirmed I was exactly where I needed to be, especially over challenging terrain. It was also miserable in, in New York that day. I think we'd gotten every single type of weather while I was there. There were days where it was, you know, 22 degrees and really balmy and humid. And then when I did that specific workout, it was windy. It was snowing. It felt like I was getting constant bee stings from the wind, just whipping like ice pellets at me. And there were certainly times where I first got into Central Park and, you know, hit that 10K mark. And I was like, maybe I'll just turn this into a 10K workout um, and call it quits and go back to the hotel. Uh, so I think that's definitely a workout that sticks out to me because of, you know, I hit the paces on a challenging course, but also that mental aspect where I was so close to throwing in the towel, but just managed to, to get through it and, and really take it one kilometer at a time um, instead of like being at kilometer 10 and already looking ahead to being at 30, 30 kilometers and being done the workout. Yeah, I remember that one. That was a savage workout. And I was on that trip because I was the uh, shoot if anyone um Alice works uh with lululemon um and we were in new york for the shoe launch and yeah like you did that workout which was savage and was so good and and central park is deceptively hilly but like during this build it was it was there was that trip but there was also you spent 48 hours driving a driving a van through the desert um yeah you know you're you're busy you're a busy guy you have a lot going on in your in, in life so how do you find the balance between managing all these things? Um, because sometimes I feel bad because I'd be like, I know Alice has this crazy stuff going on, but we got to get the work done, right? And I appreciate that you always do get the work in. Um, so do you have any tricks or like, yeah, how do you manage all that? Um, I mean, I think I use the same kind of mantra in my work and in my training, but it's this idea of being committed, but not attached. Um, so I would look at my training schedule and, and kind of compare that to my work week, especially if I was traveling and just be like, okay, what are the things that are realistic? Yes, I know that I can get out and fit in uh, a 10 kilometer run on this day, but getting in a, a 30 kilometer workout on this day probably isn't realistic. Um, so just being proactive and working in partnership with you as my coach to, to figure out what's going to work best so that it's not a surprise come, you know, say Wednesday of an event day. And I also have a 30 kilometer run plan that I know I'm not going to be able to get to. So just that agility of being able to switch things up and, and not being attached to when workouts fall on specific days. Um, but I think ultimately it just requires a, a little bit of agility as well and fitting it in when I can. And if that means that it was, you know, a late night run, um, then I'd, I'd be willing to do that. Um, but I think, yeah, just that idea of, of committed to the training, not attached to when it necessarily happens um, and having a, a degree of agility to fit things in and knowing that if there was a workout along the way or a run along the way that was missed, that that's okay. That's not going to, you know, make the, be the deal breaker on race day um, and that you probably do more damage to yourself by trying to, to fit it in and, and build work upon work um, and condensing your, your training plan. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the, you're the king of the Monday long run. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. So, you know, you, you, you get to Berlin, you build off that, you have a great um, spring, your build is, is uh, hectic, but very good and very solid. So you're, you, it's, it's time to go, right. You had, you had to Boston. So 
what was what were the vibes like and when you when you get to boston obviously you go with your partner amy um you leave your your pup up in whistler he goes on vacation um you arrive in boston how are, how is the energy how are the vibes how, how are you feeling yeah i mean the the energy is incredible i don't have a, another boston to be able to compare it to but just knowing that there hadn't been a boston marathon on patriot state for three years you could tell how excited the city was to have that happening again. I also think it was just a combination of, you know, the, the Red Sox were playing their home opener. It was beautiful weather. It was the marathon weekend. Um, so just all that together, the, the city was so alive. Uh, and it was so cool to see how a city like Boston gets behind and, and supports the marathon. Um, so just to be there, um, to be there on the, the ninth anniversary of, of the bombing as well, and to see all you know, the community and businesses that put tulips in front of their, their doors um, was just, it was really cool to see um, and really got me excited for race day on Monday um, to really take that, you know, energy to the next level and see how people come out on race day to support. Yeah, that's like, because you, you did Berlin, right? How would you compare kind of the energies? Because those, are, I mean, there's six world marathon majors. Um, you're going to do all of them eventually. There'll probably be a seventh at some point. Um, how would you compare this, the vibes? They were very different. And I think a large reason that they were different was because Berlin was in September 21. It was very early on in terms of when we were starting to come out of the pandemic or host large scale events. Um, and so I think there was still a degree of trepidation from runners, but also from people that might come out to watch. Uh, whereas fast forward, you know, six, seven months to April, um, especially in the United States, people are feeling a lot better about large scale events and coming out and, and supporting. Um, so I think just like the energy was a lot different uh, because of, I think, how things have changed and shifted with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's race week. You're there. You're in Boston. What is your pre-race routine? Is there, do you have, um, I don't know, we're just superstitions or do you have like a, a standard kind of protocol that you like to go through before on race, getting ready to go? I'm not super superstitious, but uh, we were staying at a hotel and I really just wanted to prioritize ultimate relaxation on the, the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, so that really looked like just keeping my feet up watching a lot of TV, uh, making sure that I was fueling and hydrating properly. Uh, and then I always go out for a, a pasta carb load dinner the night before race. So we got some recommendations for, for some good spots and went to a place uh, in Watertown. Uh, and one of the best Italian dinners I've ever had. It was so good um, and made sure that I was, was properly fueled for the next day's race. Um, but beyond that, it was just about making sure that I had everything I needed organized for Monday so that when my alarm went off at, at 5 a.m., I didn't really have to think about everything. Everything was just ready to go. I had my fuel laid out. I had what I was going to wear all set and ready to go um, so that I was really, you know, controlling the things that I had control over and not really leaving anything up to chance. Uh, so booking my Uber in advance and make sure that it was there to, to pick me up and take me downtown so that I could get on the bus to take me out to the start line. There you go. Sound like someone who works in events. And I, I, like, <laughs> I like that term, ultimate relaxation. 
like an engaged ultimate relaxation. I dig it. Um, yeah, race day comes. You get yourself, that Uber arrives. Um, you get yourself over to the village. Um, how are you feeling race morning? I'm feeling great. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen so many school buses in my life. Um, and then I just remember sitting on that school bus being like, oh, wow, this is a really long distance that we now have to run all the way back. <laughs> um, but it being my first Boston, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what the athletes village was like. Uh, so I was just really curious about the, the full experience and to get there. I think you're anxious to get off the bus and to get to the athletes village uh, and to see all the athletes there and then kind of get into your, your pre-race routine. Um, and warm up and things like that. Uh, so I think for me, it was just about getting there, kind of getting the lay of the land and figuring out kind of how, how things were going to go in the lead up to making my way to the start line. Um, but yeah, I think that was where a lot of my nerves were. It's just the, the unknown and having not experienced that before. Uh, I felt really great in terms of like a racing perspective and felt confident and, and knew exactly what the, the race plan was. Um, but it was more of those unknowns for me about being in the athlete village and not knowing where I could warm up um, and kind of figuring that out, being like, when should I start my warm up? If this is the time that we have to start our walk to the start line and it feels really early to be starting my warm up now um, and just kind of, you know, figuring out those race day logistics in terms of my warm up um, and making sure that I was all set to go to, to cross that start line. Yeah. Were there any hiccups along the way? No, there weren't. Like I said, I, I spent a lot of time just getting there, finding a spot to sit on the grass and just relaxing for a bit. Luckily, it was a, a beautiful day, uh, so didn't have to, to shelter in tents or find any shelter from, from rain. Um, but then I just kind of sat there and, and figured out exactly what I needed to do and, and make a plan and kind of a, a work back from, from, okay, this is when we're walking to the, to the start line and, and then going from there. Um, and even though it was a little bit different from previous race experiences, just being like, uh, you know, even if I feel like I'm, I'm warming up a little bit too early, that's okay. Like it's important to get the, the warm up in. Um, and I know that I can do a warm up here. I don't know if there'll be space to do a warm up once we, we walk towards the start line. Um, so again, just controlling the things that I was able to control and, and not leaving anything up to chance. Cause the last thing I wanted to do was make the walk to the start line, which is about a half mile and get there thinking that I was going to do my warm up there and then have no, no space to do it. Um, so even if it was a little bit early, I just really wanted to make sure that I was getting that done. Yeah. And that was smart. Good call, man. I'm liking, I'm liking what I'm hearing from a coach inside of things. <laughs> uh, so you're in that start line. Um, the gun goes off. How's the, how are the first few kilometers of the race play out? I mean, it's the best way to put it is organized chaos. I think for a lot of people, it's their, their first race in a long time uh, because of the pandemic. So that gun goes off and, and people are really excited right off the bat. And it's downhill right from the start. Um, so I think it's just about managing that pace and making sure you're not getting too caught up in the moment um, and not exerting too much wasted energy on trying to weave around people or, or get ahead of people knowing that there's so many people at the start and it, it will take some time before it starts to, to thin out. Um, so just trying to get in a rhythm right away to get those, those paces that you want to hit right away um, and, and try to lock in as early as possible um, and not worry too much about, you know, what's going on around you. Um, and at the 
same time, I just wanted to take in that full start line experience and take a moment to be like, this is it. Like I'm, I'm running the Boston marathon. Um, here, here we go. So I think for me, that was, that was what it was all about was just making sure that I was locking in, um, but also giving space to soak in the full experience for what it was. Yeah. I love that. Right. You're, you're, you're focused on the task, but you're also present enough to realize like, this is the culmination of a five-year journey, right? This is a, uh, yeah. you know, when you're walking out on the seawall five years ago and now you're here in Boston. So it's nice that you can take that time to reflect. So as the yeah. race gets going, um, you know, the first half of the race can always be a little bit nervy trying to like, trying to manage that effort, right. Trying to like lay it out being like, how much do I exert? How much am I holding back? How, how does the first half of the race play out for you physically and mentally? Yeah. I mean, I always find that the, the first half of a marathon goes by pretty quickly. Um, and in the back of my head <laughs> and then, and then you hit that mark and then obviously it, it's a lot slower, but, um, I feel like that first half, it, it went by pretty quickly and it's downhill. So, um, you're, you don't feel like you're exerting yourself a, a whole amount. Um, your legs take a beating and you realize that once you hit the Hills, um, but you don't necessarily feel it in the moment. Um, so again, I was just really trying to relax, make sure that I was hitting my splits, um, but not overexerting myself, um, as well as just enjoying the experience and the people that were out there cheering um, and, and overall just staying relaxed, um, knowing what was coming and, and then the Newton Hills. Um, but I remember that Wellesley Scream Tunnel. I think that's a, a memory that will live with me forever. And you absolutely do hear it before you see it. Um, I think that was a one, one moment in the race where I had to rein it in and look at my split app and be like, okay, I, that was quick. And it's hard to, to not speed up because there's so much energy and it, it just really drives you forward. Uh, but I got through there and it was almost a feeling of, oh, I want kind of want to turn around and do that all over again, because <laughs> it, again, it's like nothing I've ever experienced in any race. Um, so that was, that was some good motivation um, leading up to halfway and then beyond to draw on that experience. Yeah, that that scream channel. It's it's crazy the physical response you can get from something like that. And like sometimes like I wonder like if you had something like that every mile in the like how how long would it keep you pushing until finally your body's like that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> we're, we're yeah. But so you make it through the first half. Obviously you hit all that that cool experiences with with Wesley. Um and then you do hit these hills. Uh, you know they're coming. Everyone knows they're coming. Like everyone knows the Newton Hills, right? It's such a it's such an iconic aspect of the race. So, how do you, how do the hills go for you? It's it's such a unique experience for everybody. How how these hills go? Yeah, it really is. And like I said, I I came through half. I was feeling really good. I was exactly where I wanted to be. Uh, so I was really happy. Uh, and then I think the the volume of running downhill for the first half. Um, I started to feel that in my legs before the hills, um, probably around kilometer 25, maybe a little before being like, okay, now this is starting to get hard. Uh, I feel like I'm losing that fight in my legs and, and I haven't even hit the hills. I haven't hit kilometer 30. Um, so I think that's where some doubt starts to creep into my mind, especially knowing that the hills are coming. Uh, and then I hit that first hill and I would think that looking back on it, those first two hills are probably the, the worst. 
because you, you're counting them in your head. You're like, okay, that's one down. I've still got three to go. Uh, heartbreak is, I won't say it's great because it was really hard, but you know, it's the last hill. There's so many people cheering you on. Um, and once you, once you hit the top there, then, you know, it's, it's mostly downhill to the, to the finish line. So it's those hills leading up to it where I really had to dig in. Uh, my paces dropped off significantly, um, but I stopped paying attention to my watch at that point. And it was just really about effort and making sure that I was moving forward. Um, there were many times where I was felt like I was so close to, to walking because my legs were just so, so dead. Um, but when I finally made it to the top, one of the highlights of my, my running career to know that the hills were, were behind me. Um, but that might've been a little preemptive because that mile after you summit heartbreak Hill, uh, I think they call it the haunted mile. Um, and that was probably for me, one of the hardest parts of the race. Um, even though you're going downhill, you've got the Newton Hills behind you. Uh, you just really start to feel the toll of running downhill for the first half and then going through those hills. And even though you've got, you know, just about 10 K or so to go, it's that moment where you're like, I only have 10 K to go, but 10 K is also a lot. <laughs> and I'm so tired. I've given it my all at this point. Uh, so for me, the, the hills were really humbling. I think I went into it initially thinking, oh, you know what? The hills aren't going to be that bad. I think they get hyped up a lot, uh, but I can confirm they, they were, in my opinion, that bad. Um, just the amount of volume that you've put into them, into your legs by the time you get there. Uh, it was a real mental battle to be able to keep moving and uh, to get to the top. Yeah, I can. And I can, I can totally confirm what you're, especially with that, that haunted mile afterwards. I've done, I've done Boston a while ago. And I remember coming off heartbreak and coming down that, that was still to this day, the only time in my career where I was cramping so hard, I was like, I might have to, I might not be able to finish this thing because my legs are cramping and they're doing the weirdest stuff that I've never experienced before. And I hate it because there's nothing I can do about it. So you come off, um, you, you get through the, the, the hills and, and the Haunted Mile. Um, and then you do, you have about eight kilometers to go and you're just knackered but you've trained so hard to get here. You're so close. You're on goal pace. What is the battle? What is the battle like over those last five miles? What keeps you going? Yeah, that, it, I mean, it really was a battle. I think at that point I had probably said goodbye to my A goal of running sub 240, but I knew that sub 245 was still very much in the cards. Um, and again, at that point, it, it kind of became a mental game of, of doing some math. And I think that helped distract me a little bit as well. Um, but just really understanding like, okay, what do I have to run at minimum to be able to run sub 245 um, and being like, okay, like I can do that. I can maintain that. I know that I've slowed down significantly. Um, but if I maintain this pace and just keep moving forward, then I still have an opportunity to run sub 245. Um, so for me, those last you know, five miles, uh, it was just about locking in, staying really focused and knowing that there was still a job to be done to run sub 245, um, making sure that I was still ensuring to hydrate and fuel myself because I was going to need it over that final, you know, three miles, five kilometers. Um, and also at that point, letting some other people do the work as well, right? You know, drafting in behind people, 
Um, there was a little bit of wind in our face as well. So just trying to make it as easy on myself as possible to gear up for a really strong finish. Were you in the, were you in a, in a, in a mind space where you were able to acknowledge when you passed the sit go sign? Yes and no. Um, I think I had a different expectation in my mind of what it was going to be like with people coming out from, from the Red Sox game. And I think I remembered seeing it from, from far away. Um, but don't actually remember like the moment in the race where I passed it. I was very much in the, the hurt locker at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the same thing when I ran Boston, I was like, I just like free. I was like, Oh, there's that sign. Great. Just get me done. That's want to be done this frigging thing. So, you know, you're coming up, you're finishing. And obviously Boylston street is one of the most iconic finishes in, in, in a marathon out there. Um, so you round that corner and it's wide. There's thousands of people walk, talk us through those, that last half mile of your race. Yeah, that right-hand turn onto Hereford and then left onto Boylston. Again, an experience that I will remember forever. Um, And that's where Amy was actually posted up, uh, cheering me on right on the corner there. And did you hear her? I was was so focused. I was hurting so much at that point in time that I I didn't miss. I completely missed her. Uh, Ran right by and there's a video um, with her and, and some other people that she was cheering with. And uh, there's zero acknowledgement for me, <laughs> which I feel, I feel bad about, but I was so focused and in the zone at that point in time, making that left-hand turn on, onto Boylston. And it kind of remind me of the finish to BMO where you can see the finish line in the distance and it just never gets any closer. And at this point in time, I was really looking at my watch to be like, okay, I, I know it's close. Um, but I'm going to give it my all on this stretch to, to run sub 245. Um, so that's really what it became about over those last, you know, 500 meters, 600 meters. Um, not the same as when I ran Eugene, where I really got to experience that finish line. Um, I was just all in on trying to get under sub 245. Um, so that was my focus. Uh, I missed certainly some, some of that finish line experience. Um, but I was just driven by, by that goal. Um, so at that point it was just heads down, pump those arms and you've got 600 meters to go. So leave everything that you've got on this course, um, and don't have any regrets when you cross that finish line and coming in, seeing the clock, um, and seeing the time on my watch, knowing that I was going to run sub 245 was such a special moment and to be able to do it on such a challenging course like Boston, where, you know, five years ago, if you asked me or told me that I would run sub 245 at Boston, I probably would have laughed in your face and said, yeah, right. Um, so to be able to put it all together on uh, such a, at such a historic race um, was, was pretty special. Um, so just to cross the finish line, um, one of the first people I saw when I crossed the finish line was another mile to marathon athlete, Lance, um, who we, who we had trained with um, a lot in the buildup. So that was a, a special moment for us to have as well. Yeah. Lance had a brilliant day. He went two thirty eight, and, um, yeah, you guys, yeah, he's incredible. You guys had done so much training together. Um, so yeah, that's why I wanted to ask, like when you do cross that finish line and, and, and you're done and you've done it and you've hit your goal, where does your head go? Like what, what are the emotions and how do you, what do you, what are you processing at that point? 
I think it's just like a sense of relief and accomplishment to be like, I did it. And getting that medal um, put around your neck, is, again, it's just so special because it is symbolic of a lot of sacrifices and a, and a lot of hard work. Uh, so I was just really enjoying that moment. And then it becomes all about, okay, I need to get off my feet. <laughs> and I would love a cold beer and something to eat. And it is a really long walk once you cross the finish line um, to get out of the, the finish line area and get to the family meetup spot where uh, I was going to meet Amy. Um, and there, the volunteers there are incredible. And they would congratulate me on on being finished and I would turn to them and say, thank you, but it really doesn't feel like I'm finished yet because <laughs> I'm still, I'm still walking. Um, and I just really want to get off my feet. Um, so yeah, it went from just this massive sense of accomplishment, um, to the priority being getting off my feet and relaxing. Um, and then looking forward to meeting up with Amy and just celebrating that moment together as well, because that was the first major, um, that she's been able to be at with me. So that in itself was, was a special moment. Yeah, and definitely just a big shout out to Amy. She's been such a great partner um, for, through all this, being so supportive of you. I was, I was, I was uh, relying on a lot of her Instagram stories during the race to try to get updates and things like that. So um, it, was, it was pretty great. So yeah, what did, it's like, what did you do to celebrate? Did you get yourself that cold beer? And what, what food did you get yourself? Yeah, I did. So it, it's so busy in that, and in that finish line area and trying to get out can be challenging with the, the road closures around downtown Boston. Um, but we made our way on to Newbury and we met up with another mile to marathon athlete, Riley, and went and found the nearest patio that had availability and sat down and had uh, some beers and a, and a burger. And it was actually right next to, to Hereford as well. So we still got to experience that, that finish line feeling um, and hear all the cheering and, and see the runners going by. Um, so I think we found the perfect spot. Yeah, Riley ran really well too. Um, it, that was a good day. That sounds delightful. That sounds absolutely delightful. It was perfect, yeah. yeah. Like food, that's like when food and drink taste the best is after a hard effort, it's just so well-deserved, it's so satisfying. Yeah, no, nothing beats it. And then we went back to the hotel and I may have had the best Domino's pizza I've ever had in my life. <laughs> That's how you make Domino's taste good. It's just run 42 kilometers before you eat it. Exactly. Even though, I mean, there's no such thing as bad pizza. Um, so <laughs> how, did, how, how did your legs feel the next day? My legs have never felt like that before. I think it was that combination of running downhill for more than half of the marathon followed up by some pretty significant hills. Um, but my quads were completely shot and I, you know, really had to use all of my upper body strength to be able to, to get up from a seated position. And it was really slow going. We went to a Red Sox game on the Tuesday night and like walking up and down the stairs to get to our seats was a total nightmare. Um, but yeah, it definitely, I haven't experienced that type of soreness, especially in my hamstrings uh, or sorry, in my quads. Uh, so that was, was something to get used to. Um, but again, it was just such a high from running Boston and having run sub two forty five that it, it didn't really matter at all to me. It was all worth it. Yeah. Battle scars, right? Just 
internal exactly. in your quads. Yeah, Logan Airport the, the day or two after Boston's hilarious. Just everyone's just walking around so, so beaten, battered, but also so happy and light. And and it's 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 an interesting and it's a positive, positive vibe. Um, so yeah, man, like that was such a cool experience and you ran so well. If you could, if you could pick what would be the one highlight of your Boston Marathon experience? Oh, that's a good question. And and there are so many. Um, but I think one that will stick in my mind is early on in the race, I ran past uh, a lady who lost her leg in 2013. Her name's Adrian, and she was spectating in, in 2013 um, and lost her leg. And she was running with Shalane Flanagan, who I also spent some time running with in Berlin. Um, she didn't know that, but you know, I knew I was running with her. Um, so I think just that experience of, of seeing somebody that has gone through that amount of trauma to be back running the Boston marathon, um, it was so inspiring and it was, it was so cool to see, um, you know, everyone has a, has a unique story, um, at the start line and, and different journeys to get there and different sacrifices. Um, but you know, once you cross that start line, we're all runners, we're all chasing after the same goal of finishing the, the Boston marathon. Um, so I think just to, to be able to run past her and, and to see her taking on the Boston marathon was, was pretty spectacular. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that, that is, that's, that's, a, that's a powerful moment. And thanks for sharing that. So, yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up. That was a, uh, thank you for taking the time today to share your Boston marathon experience. And I'm so happy that you ran so well. Um, but before we go, what's next for you then? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, what's up next? You mentioned it earlier, but I do have a goal to run all six of the world marathon majors. So I'll be heading to New York in November. So that will be world marathon major number four. And in the build up to that, I'm just looking forward to some shorter distances, uh, some five K's, some 10 K's, uh, maybe a half or two sprinkled in there. Um, but working on some of those shorter distances and trying to get some official PBs in those distances. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to seeing what you can do in those shorter distances. Um, it has been a pleasure working with you as an athlete and it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, so yeah, man. So again, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing your story. And um, do you have any, any last words for anybody? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, I think just before I, I sign off is just there, there's no goal that you can put out there that is, is too audacious. And so if you have a goal of running Boston Marathon or running a super fast time, just put it out there, get after it, um, because you'll surprise yourself about what you're capable of doing. Perfect. And I agree. <laughs> Thanks, right. Rob. Cheers, man. All right, everybody. That was Alice, rad dude, fast dude. And yeah, thanks for listening. Alrighty. Yeah. So thanks so much, Ellis. That was a nice chat with Mr. Ellis Gray. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Next up, we are going to talk with Trevor Hoffbauer. Uh, Tre Trevor is a mile to marathon coach. He's also obviously a phenomenal athlete, having run really well in Boston. So let's hear all about it. Uh, yeah. Take it away me and trevor cute there you go 
Um, I, I mean, so like, that doesn't mean we're like, we're, we're on now, but I'm just recording just in case. Uh, I don't know. So don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Don't say anything incriminating right now because it's, it's recorded. How you doing, man? Where are, where are you? Are you? Are you in Peachland right now? I'm in Kelowna. I, I moved to Kelowna a couple of days ago. On oh, weekend. really? Eh? It's a very sad day. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, uh, what was the reason for that? I had a six month lease in Peachland and Peachland's just like super small. There's no other rental availability. And with going to school to go from like Peachland to Kelowna every day, like the bridge and the lights, oh my God, it would just be a complete disaster and a headache. So I got myself, yeah, I got myself a place in Kelowna, which is better. I got a roommate. He's out for a run right now. His name's Morris. He's pretty cool. So yeah, it's tight. It's tight. I love it. I want, to, I want you to take that slang to, to university now and see what you say. But all the kids have like different terms. Like they have fire and yeet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like, I, I don't know these other ones. They'll verbally say the emoji they're trying to say to you. That's, that's pretty much exactly. Right. How, far, how far, I've never been to Peachland. How far away is Peachland from Kelowna? uh 25 kilometers ish okay so it's enough to be annoying yeah if you had to yeah because it's like there's Kelowna West Kelowna West Bank and then Peachland um and then Summerland Penticton but yeah it's like just outside of the city so it's quiet enough and it's just peaceful the megalopolis down there in the interior um when, when school starts uh oh i don't know i still need to accept my offer <laughs> i've been pushing that back <laughs> it's been like man since boston <laughs> it's been busy <laughs> that's, that's good busy or like, i mean probably you're moving you're just what's what's going on yeah what's been going on yeah since? just all of the above yeah the fallout from boston um just like a lot of communication comes up after races yeah and then as a Vancouver for family stuff. And that, that took about like five days to deal with. And then came back and just moved. And now here we are. And then we got Pacific Distance Carnival coming up. Do it's going to be electric. You're going to be doing some pacing there. Yeah, are you going to be doing pacing too? I'll be doing some pacing. We'll, oh, we'll oh, both yeah, yeah. do some pacing. We're big bodies, man. We can, we can, we can get in there. So yeah, get these people on our shoulders and let's just drag them along. Yeah, and then I'll kick him in the last 200 just to make sure they know who's boss. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't think I can outkick most of the people these days, but they love you. They love you. So hopefully the follow-up from Boston has been positive because you absolutely crushed that race. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, man. Yeah. That was really, really cool. It was good. And it was just exciting, right? Because, like, Melindy placed really well in the 11th, and she ran 227. Natasha, in her own words, didn't have the greatest of days, but being in the top 20 is still something that you should be proud of. And Kate Baisley was 24th. So the Canadians went out there and we ran well. So I think like not only is my performance, like all of our performances are good. So I think they should be looked looked at equally. Yep. Or (laughs) Melindy's was better. (laughs) 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 Melindy is... I really, really like Melindy, but at the same time, I'm resentful of Melindy because I'm seeing what she is doing. And then I was like, man, maybe I should run again and go seriously. So she's, she's, uh, 
she's setting a she's setting a bad precedent running so well she's amazing she's absolutely amazing what she's been able to accomplish over the last couple of years it's inspiring yeah. it was old, like aging athletes who are like using trying to use our age as a reason not to uh to work to like get it stay, stay just stay on it but she's like yeah i'm gonna do it and she's uh so she's a massive badass so that's really cool she yeah right. but uh did you know that did you know that melinda's broken nine hours for an ironman I did know that. I did because uh, she's an amazing athlete. Like she's like she Olympian in the fifteen hundred, and then did all that Ironman triathlon stuff. So aerobically, like she's probably she's so so. She's got the track pedigree, and then that massive aerobic aerobic work ethic from all the Ironman stuff. And then like when she was forty, she's like, I'm gonna run a marathon and goes to two twenty four. It's like, okay, okay, Melinda, we get it. We get it. You're good. All right. Yeah, yeah it's so impressive. And like, even taking a look at the next couple of years here, like that, that could be her third Olympics. So <laughs> you take a look at like the history of her being in the Olympics in the 2000s and then coming out, smashing under nine hours for an Ironman, running 224 for the marathon and qualifying for the Olympics in 2020. And then yeah see about 2024 but just like an incredible career it's amazing yeah she's still going she's still going which is yeah call her up let's get her on the podcast there we go <laughs> yeah man but i i wanted to talk i wanted to obviously we wanted to talk with you today so what we're doing is uh yeah we've had we've had athletes and coaches doing some really cool stuff over the last little bit and we just kind of wanted to get the um get the podcast going again because it's a good way to keep communications going you know, I write a week, we all write weekly newsletters, but I'm not a very good writer. I'm not saying I'm a good podcast host or anything, but I mean, this is, this is another medium, <laughs> another medium for doing it. And I just, you know, with Boston being kind of, I, I would say that Boston is the, like the pinnacle race for the people in my ultramarathon. Um, coaches and athletes, well, coaches, probably the Olympics. And then, but you know, athletes, I think, I think, uh, Boston is the show and you were at the show and you, you friggin' nailed it, which was awesome. So, um, obviously, you know, you, you've got your history and anyone who wants to know about Trevor Hoffbauer, let, let's give him, let's give him a two minute biography. Go now. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, just kidding. Yeah. Uh, I'm Trevor Hoffbauer. I came from I was born in Port Moody, lived in Calgary for 18 years, and that's my home. Now I'm in Kelowna, and I run the marathon, personal best of 209. I've represented Canada at the Olympics, at World Cross Country Championships, at a couple of NACAC events. So I think I've been on like four or five or six national teams, something like that. And ran well in Boston. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that on my resume for like future races. I'll have like all these accolades of like times and positions, and then I'll put just like Randall in Boston. <laughs> well, do, do you know what? Uh, that's funny you mentioned that because when when Mile the Marathon first started, Dylan and I um, got these. We got um, business cards because we're like, yeah, we're business. Let's get a business cards, and his was like Olympian two ten. And mine was almost one Boston because <laughs> it's a big. If I had a magical last ten, maybe I would. So I almost one Boston. That was my uh, that was my calling card there. So it's all good. Mm -hmm. When you ran Boston, what place did you finish in? Eleventh. You know. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, but 
Just, you know. just surf out the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, it was all right. It was, it was a good day. I wanted to be top ten mm-hmm. so bad, and I was like, in, I was in tenth, and then uh, at like twenty two miles, these two guys passed me. I got one, mm. I got one of them back, but I we're, we're not talking about my race. We're talking about your race. Um, so after, when did you first put? boston on the calendar for yourself um is it something yeah. you always wanted to do uh how did the opportunity present itself and what made you say yes uh the day i came back from tokyo i said we're going to do boston in the spring and basically when i came back from tokyo that's when i started to restructure my life and take a look at potential opportunities so that's when i decided to move out to Kelowna. didn't know when that was going to happen i knew that i wanted to go to school i knew that ubco had a great program for education, which is what I'll go into in the future. And it just brought me closer to family and just taking a look at like what I wanted to do with athletics itself. I was just like so disappointed by the Olympics and just everything that was taking place in my life that um, I needed I needed something to kind of bounce back from. And there's no better stage outside of the Olympics to do it than Boston. So going from the Olympics, I was like, what's the next big race on the schedule? Nice. Let's do Boston. Let's get ready for that. And I reached out to to them in November. We were chatting for about a month there. And then in December, uh, we nailed things down. And they, they said, hey, you, we'll have you in a race. I was like, sick. <laughs> so uh, just a little bit of um, background. What, what was so disappointing about your Olympic experience? that you needed to change things up a little bit? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily like the disappointment of Boston created the change of things in in my life and things like that, but um, just personal loss. Like, yeah, I lost my grandmother the day before we flew out for Tokyo and her and I were extremely close and that was a huge blow to me. And the whole time I was in Tokyo, I just didn't want to be there. I told Athletics Canada that I wanted to go back home and they knew about my situation. They knew that I was extremely upset and I was grieving and there was just like, like, there was nothing I could do. It was either go home and go to the funeral and grieve and just like lie in my bed and watch the Olympics take place. Or it was either just muster something up mm-hmm. and get the race done. And just like the second I crossed that finish line, I just like shattered and yeah, just went home and dealt with it. Um, but there was just like, there's nothing I could do. And I thought it was kind of new and it was what it was. And then we had followed from that. And just even going into that race too, there's like expectations that people put on you. And especially with mm, the carding system, <laughs> there's expectations of you, right? So I was aware of like what my target was to retain my carding. And like, I, I knew even before the race started that I wasn't going to hit it. So it's like, I lost my grandma. I knew that I wasn't going to hit standard for karting. So like all in one moment, I lose somebody who's incredibly close to me. And I know that I'm not going to have funding going forward. And there's just nothing I can do about it. And that's just like devastating. So it's like, where do you go from there? And it just like, it took a few months to just like really soak it in to kind of get over it. Yeah, man. That's, I'm really, really sorry to hear that. That is, that is 
a really tragic way to go into something that you know you've been working for and you've held up for so long but then there's we don't this sport doesn't exist in a bubble right and there's life going on around it and that's just awful um yeah so mm. sorry for your loss there and um and to yeah. go back but to, like even even too if i can just expand on it like yeah. It's a shitty situation, but like Dana was thrown into a pretty shitty situation too, being quarantined for two weeks. So yeah, we like outside of the sport itself, we all have shit going on. And I just feel like there is opportunities for people around us who say that they support us to make that apparent afterwards. And here we are unsupported. That, um, that Sapporo marathon decision it, it was a bit of a cluster for sure and dana yeah i don't know if, if anyone listening is dana was she just had to she had what she had a close contact on her flight and thus had to sit in a hotel room for the 14 days before her olympic marathon so yeah what it was like that is <laughs> man it was so messed up so i'll tell a quick little story about that uh, we were in our hotel room and okay i don't know how much detail i can go into about this Okay, we were in our hotel room. We find out that like Dana was close contact and they have to isolate in their own room. And they're isolating in Gifu for the rest of the trip. And then we're told that once we go to Sapporo, that things would be a little bit looser and that she'd be able to rejoin the team. So her and Josh drove on a bus separate from our bus. Their bus was just driving behind us from Gifu to Tokyo for six hours. They were by themselves. When we went to the washrooms, we could all like intermingle again so we could hang out with them. Um, and then once we got to the Tokyo airport, we were able to intermingle and hang out. And then when we were on the plane, we we're all sitting together and Dana's like sitting within or with all of us. And Josh went back to Vancouver. And then once we got to Sapporo, we thought everything was good. And then Dana got pulled off to the side and this private limo took her to the hotel that we were staying at. And she was just isolated from us. They set up a table in, in the eating space specifically for her it had like a name tag that said dana with a canada flag on it um because she was supposed to be isolating and that was just like devastating like you're in this you're in this conference center and in this buffet everybody's sitting around you and you're isolated by yourself just sitting by yourself it was like it was so heartbreaking and just i yeah i know that she has her own words for her experience but for all of us it's like man, we're a team. Like we want to be together and they're isolating her. And for that whole time in Sapporo, they isolated her. And we were told that it was going to be easier. Uh, we're just going to have less restrictions and more mobility within the team. And it was actually more strict. It was like we were in prison. It was just awful. And for her to be by herself without Josh, without anybody on a completely separate floor from us, like, yeah, don't even know how to put that into words. That's that's brutal that is absolutely brutal yeah and it makes no sense um wow i mean, it was really good to see dana run so well this past weekend she looked great out there and she won the bmo marathon which is which is nice and i guess that shows like the resiliency um that you need in this sport to be able to move on from those experiences um much like you did <laughs> but before we get into boston i will take my opportunity to yes Athletics Canada is the most frustrating governing body in the way they support their athletes or lack thereof. And yourself is a prime example. You're on the Olympic team. You're representing the country at the highest level. 
but you feel like you're fighting the people who are their literal job is to support the athletes. These these jobs exist to support athletics Canada's athletes, and they time and time again they let they let the athletes down and they fail them, and you know you represent them one week and they hold you up and the next week you know your your yesterday, yesterday's news and it's frustrating and it's hard and it puts a lot of it puts a lot of unneeded stress on the athlete when their job is to perform. Um, so I'm sorry you had to deal with that. And, and it's just something that this point it's, it's, it's been like that for decades. It was like that when my brother was running, it was like that when I was running, it's like that. Now I don't know how to fix it. And it's one of those things where it's like, if you want to complain about a problem, you should bring a solution. But sometimes mm -hmm. at less Canada, it's like, it's a broken system. And I don't know what the solution is to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, th I think triathlon Canada might be worse <laughs> from what I've heard. <laughs> um, but even, even do like athletes, Kate Van Busker, CPT, Luke, Ben, like I, I'm probably missing a couple names in there too. Yep. They're unsupported too. They ran like hell last year. Kate Van Busker had an amazing year. <laughs> CPT is outperforming guys that are getting carded right now. Luke has been balling out since the Olympics as well. And he ran well in the Olympics. Yeah. Ben ran 210 within the qualifying period. And just because he finished 45th or 46th, whatever the place is at the Olympics, like, I don't know. Not my problem. Well, I, it's well, a problem. Just, like, <laughs> there, that, the pro that's the problem. And then the solution is that you just got to do what you can do and control your own controllable elements. You control what you did when you mm -hmm. were running. And they said, that's not enough. Fine. You go out and you do your own thing say and then so you make that clean break after tokyo move on um deal with all the really the the unfortunate situations in life but you're still a runner and you still have to focus on that so then you make the decision to go to boston um and 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 put your and put your energies and put your focus towards boston you move to Peachland. when does the boston build begin uh yeah, let me just think back. So I joined BC Endurance Project in October, and that's when Rich started coaching me. And we started training for like first half half marathon back in November. Um, and that was yeah, that was like kind of that was structured training towards half marathon, but with marathon focus as well. And then we just kind of trained through first half going into Boston. So. I think we started training like in November um, at that, like I, my fire has just been really hot ever since the Olympics. So I've been able to handle the mileage, handle the training. And it was, it was a pretty long marathon build, but I felt motivated and I felt fine through it. So sometimes like just the, well, you know, how it is the mass volume of marathon training, like it can catch up. And after like 12, 14 weeks, it can really hit. Um, but I didn't find that this time around, thankfully. Good. That's awesome. That's really, really good to hear. So yeah, like you said, you joined the BC Endurance Project. You started work, working with Rich. What changes did you notice within your training? Obviously you had what has gotten you to here, which was, you know, you've run 209. You, you've made the mm -hmm. Olympic team. You're a phenomenal runner. Um, what, uh, you know, what was the reason to join BC Endurance Projects and what changes did you notice to your training and to your kind of athletic outlook um, did that bring? Yeah, when I was back in Calgary, I was coached by Dion Flynn. Uh, it was 
a collaborative effort because um, I do enjoy coaching myself. So I informed him that I was parting ways and joined up with Rich. And the, the motivation behind that was mostly just giving it a shot. Like I've seen how successful Rich has been with guys like Dylan and you're a coach by Rich too, right? Like for a it little was, bit in there? Yeah, Rich and I worked together for a little bit. And um, yeah, and, and he is a phenomenal coach. Um, I think we didn't work out for other reasons, um, but it was, it was all positive for sure. Yeah, yeah. So he's worked with you. He's worked with Kelly, Luke, Ben, Justin. Even just right now, like having that group of the four of us, uh, that was motivating too, seeing Ben move out to Vancouver and seeing Justin stepping up to the marathon. And Luke can dabble into some of that longer stuff too, but we can also link up on shorter stuff. And just being in BC as well, being close to Vancouver, like I know that I'm going to be down there more often. So we can just sync up better. And it was just motivating being within that group. And when Rich and I were down in Flagstaff early 2020, just before the pandemic, we clicked well. Like we get along as people, our personalities click. So I wanted to be coached by him and it's worked. So I'm happy with it. Right on. Did you do any altitude training before Boston? Like any tinkering? Sorry, did you did you do like an altitude block in your in your Boston? Oh, gotcha. I went to Calgary for a week. <laughs> just kidding well yeah i did i did go up there but that i don't know poor man's altitude almost but calgary is actually like a challenging spot to uh to train in i feel like the 1000 meters of elevation actually hits harder than what some people would anticipate it to um but yeah there was that i didn't do anything else just like with the border and covid and travel and yeah, that's a, <laughs> I don't want to mess with that. I completely spaced on that. I was just like thinking in my head, like marathon builds, marathon builds. And it's like, oh yeah, there was this global pandemic, which was really causing issues with a lot of things also. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, like you said, you, you did the first half um, and that was part of your build. I remember seeing you the day before the first half and you're like, Rich has me just, I think you did like four by 5k or something like the week before. So you were in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the meat of training. So the first half would have been early in the build. Um, and you obviously came to Vancouver for that, rolled with the boys. How, how did that, how'd that race go? And how did you like that experience? Well, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it was like the first race since the beginning of the pandemic in Canada. Just having like a mass participant start without like these wave starts and things like that. So it, man, it was electric. For a 2000 person race, it was just bumping. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Like Vancouver first half puts on a, puts on a great course. Uh, it's a great race experience. I feel like it should be on everybody's uh, list of races to do in Canada. And it's just like, it's first thing in the year. So why not get out for it? Um, but the race played out well. Like Luke, Luke, Justin and I, we hammered pretty hard. Ben kind of sat back a little bit. Thomas Nobbs was pushing the pace um, for like half the race as well. Uh, so to see guys like Thomas Nobbs and Thomas Broach running well and stepping up and trying to fight with us, like they're promising athletes. We'll see how they develop in the future, but they are showing like very promising signs right now. And yeah, it was just like, it was a good experience. We pushed so hard and yeah, I feel like we got the most out of each other uh, on that day because we all went under that record and um, just ran really well. 
Yeah, that was super cool one to watch. You guys, you guys threw down. <laughs> you definitely, you definitely got out there. There was there was no messing about. So it was really cool. And like you said, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was like a it was a two thousand person race, which on paper doesn't look big, but being in that environment after so long of not, it might as well have been friggin' the New York City Marathon. It just was. It was huge, and, and the energy was great. And it was so cool to see everyone show up and, and the Vancouver scene show up. So that was, that was really, really cool. So obviously you, 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 you go there, you put on a good performance um, and then you continue to get stuck into your Boston training. So obviously with the Boston marathon, there's the elements of, you know, there's the course, which is, which is challenging. Um, did you do any specific training, you know, so with your philosophy with training, was there like, we need to obviously get really fit for a marathon, but then there's these aspects of the Boston marathon course that we have to address. Um, how did you do that and work that into your training? Yeah. So Peachland is super hilly. Every one of my routes has quite a bit of hills. And I think if I were to pull up my Strava, um, I'm just going to go based off memory. Now I was averaging like 160 kilometers per week, but I had 1,200 to 1,400 meters of elevation gain per week. So that's quite a bit. That's, like a, yeah, that's a lot for a road runner. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of yeah. yeah. Like for, for my long runs, like for some, or for some of those midweek long runs, I was breaking 300 meters of elevation gain in one run. So I was, I was hitting hills hard in my easy runs and in some of my midweek long runs. And then for the workouts itself, I was mostly training on just like more flatter surfaces. There's Lakeshore Drive in Summerland, which is like, uh, I think it's 4.1 kilometers to one end. So I'll just go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, it was eight kilometers and there's like two little kicker hills in it. So I would just do my longer tempos on that. And that was a good spot to just kind of get into a good groove and a good rhythm and incorporate a couple hills. But it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was doing tempos on heartbreak hill or a simulated heartbreak hill all the time. I was just incorporating a lot of hills into my easy runs. And I noticed physically, like my body has changed, like my legs have filled out a little bit. My upper body feels strong. Um, even going into the race week, like with marathon training, because you're taking on so many miles, like you can kind of feel your body shrink down. I just felt like I was a weightlifter <laughs> kind of the week leading up to the race. Um, but I was just strong and it, it worked. So, yeah. Do you, do you incorporate strength training into your, into your um, training? I do. Yeah. Um, I've kind of let my foot off the gas after the Olympics here, just cause I wanted, I just wasn't like motivated to get into the gym over the last six months. So I haven't done too much recently, but I think the Hills like helped with yeah. that. If I did strength on top of that, I think that might've been too much. Yeah. Um, but for now, like I'll get back into the gym twice a week, and uh, do some weightlifting and just do some running specific stuff. Yeah. So yeah. Twice a week there. And then like other stuff as well. Right on. Yeah. It's, it's always hard. It's that balance, right? Because you're putting in so much run volume. So obviously you got to make room for recovery but then you do also want to do the supplementary stuff. So finding that balance on how it's, how it's going to work. It can be, it can be a fine, it can be a fine line. And a lot of times people can overcook it. Um, I've done that myself where it's like, I just want to do too much and then things get compromised and then you don't notice it right away. But then six weeks down the road, you're like, Oh gosh, 
I'm, I'm pooped. So, yeah. yeah. So run, run up hills. When in doubt, just, just run up hills. It'll get you. It'll get you nice and nice and strong. Did you do any other warm up um, or prep races um, in in you know before Boston other than the first half? Yeah, we went to Comox for their half marathon, and it's funny because. <laughs> I took this a little personally before the race, but um, there's like a little write-up about the Boston Marathon going in from Canadian running. And they said that I had an up and down season so far <laughs> because I ran 103 at first half and then I ran 108 high at Comox. Um, but what they didn't know is that Rich had me run like 18 kilometers before that race at like a moderate pace. And then the first half of that race was like just moderate pace. And then the last half of the race was like, just basically balls out for, so from like 27 K to 37 K I ran like 30 minutes and 30 seconds and then had, then had a three, three K cooldown for 40 kilometers. So it was like Comax half was, it was a really fun event and they're like very proud of that event out there um it was a lot of fun but it was a part of a workout so that yeah. time wasn't really indicative of my fitness <laughs> well it, it, that's the thing right it's like it's like there's numbers on the page but there's also a story behind those numbers and maybe if if this this publication would have done a little bit of journalism <laughs> they would have maybe got to the bottom of that but not always not always their forte <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and Comox is great. Uh, they have such a good running community over there. I saw a bunch of their athletes this, this weekend at BMO and there's just, there's vibrant. Um, it's, it's so, yeah, that's a cool race. I would love to get over there one day and do it myself. So obviously your training has been going well, uh, you know, or up and down as some would say, um, and you're getting into Boston as, as Boston's getting closer um, are you formulating specific goals for the race? Um, what, what, where, what were you looking to achieve results wise as, as Boston was getting closer? What would you want to do there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, before that, but with, with that publication, they gave me that motivation, right? So go. even though there is that little up and down, like, man, just like it took me to that next level. So let's get after it. Um, so thank you, Canadian running. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, with, with Boston, like my ultimate goal was to be top 10. Uh, I felt like I was in a good position with my training to be in the top 10. But I also knew that it was like, quote unquote, the deepest field in history that they've ever assembled. Dude, it was sick. So, the field was sick. Yeah. 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 So it was deep. Um, but I knew that I could run well. I knew that I was fit and I was motivated and ready to go. So top 10, I felt like it was realistic. But I wasn't going to like destroy myself. For it because I knew that like some people were going to make moves and like we had a pretty large group off the start and kind of broke off like halfway through the race so I just kind of stuck to my race plan of like staying comfortable throughout the race not pushing too hard and just really capitalizing over the Newton Hills and towards the second half of the race um, so I just like I let a lot of the guys go and my kind of my equation is for for all the for all the Africans in the race, half of them will not be fit, <laughs> uh, and then the other half of those will drop out, or half of them will drop out, and then the other half of that number uh, is not fit. So if there's like I think in our race there's 20 guys, 
like seven of them or six of them finished. So yeah, it's intimidating, like seeing a pack of 20 guys go and then, and then you're in a pack of like 15 guys and you're like, I want to be top 10 in this race. Like, do I go and chase them down and like make sure I'm in that pack or do I just like trust your trust my race plan, trust my comfort level and like let everything nat- naturally happen. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah, that worked out and it got me into 15th. Um, but even though I was 15th and wanted to be in the top 10, like I'm happy with that performance because there was literally nothing else I could do on that day. I was spent crossing that finish line. And I feel like if you, if you put your best foot forward and you lay it all on the line, you got to be happy with that. Exactly. Exactly. That's great advice. And it's something a really good reminder for the athletes out there, right? It's like, you have what you want to do, but if you cross that finish line and you're spent, you give it all you got, that's what you have on the day. And to go and run two ten in Boston, I believe that was the fastest time by a Canadian ever in Boston. And so like you showed up and two ten on that course is insane, by the way. So it's just, it's such an impressive performance. Um, so going back to, you know, the whole Boston experience. Um, yeah. So like, have you done any of the other majors before? No, this is my first one. So yeah. yeah. And, and the Olympics was obviously a, a different Olympic experience. So this probably, this would have been the biggest race you'd ever been to. Um, and the Boston marathon is, is the show. So when did you, when did you arrive into Boston on race week? Mm, we got there. Oh man, my flight was was wild. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they flew me out of Kelowna at 5.30 p.m. I went down to Seattle and then I got on the plane at 11.30 p.m. in Seattle and got to Boston at 7.30 in the morning <laughs> on Thursday. High performance, and... high performance right there. <laughs> but it worked out. I slept the whole time on the plane okay. and then I woke up in Boston fresher than daisies and just I'm pretty good at adjusting to time periods so it all worked out and yeah I got got there on Thursday we had Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday uh race day on Monday and then I was on a shuttle at four o'clock in the morning Tuesday morning to go to the airport for a 6 a.m flight (laughs) so (laughs) they were not messing around they're like your race is done see ya get out of here (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and were, were you guys at the the Copley, the the Fremont Copley down there? Yeah. Yeah. Really nice hotel. It's nice, nice. It, it is a nice hotel. You got Corey, the the Black Lab. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever met Corey? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. Well, I I did the I did the race about ten years before you did. So Corey, I don't think existed when I was mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they, yeah. I remember them having a dog. It might have been like Corey one or Corey four, you know, you might be on Corey eight by this point. I don't even know. Yeah. That, they take really, really good care of you at that, um, care of you at that race. Um, did you do any, any, like, obviously there's media, you're a Saucony athlete, Saucony's based out of Boston. Um, was there any sort of commitments in that regard? Cause sometimes that can be tiring, right? Where you show up and yeah. especially for the American athletes in Boston, they're spread fairly thin and when you're there to perform. So did you find any of that to be distracting or, or was it, or is it exciting to you to do all that pre-race stuff? Yeah, I honestly didn't have too many pre-race obligations. Like I didn't have to do any media for Boston. Uh, I think Melindy had to do like the pre-race press conference. 
um, with the Saucony, I reached out to them and yeah, on the Thursday I got off the plane, went for a run and then went to Boston or went to Saucony HQ and they showed me around, they showed me, they showed me product. I met the team, like the marketing team. Um, I, I think I met the finance, like the finance team and like some of the shipping guys as well. Um, and the engineers too. So like I met the whole gang out in Boston and was shown around and it was a phenomenal experience. And it's really cool, like seeing the innovation of some of these Sockney products coming out in the future. And yeah, yeah, it's exciting times at the company. So we'll, everybody else will see it in the future, but uh, there's some cool products coming out. And that's all I had for obligations from there. I just, I had a book with me. I would go down to Public Garden, uh, right by Boston Common there. And I would just sit by, sit by the pond and just read and hang out and just like turn off my mind and just isolate from everybody because in like you've experienced it in that coffee square there's just like bananas for four days with like boston marathon jackets and talking about running and like man god disconnect from that yeah. so yeah i just like <laughs> i saw public garden and i'm like get me over there asap <laughs> what were you what were you reading pardon what were you reading Oh, it's called Stealing Fire. Um, I forget who it's by, but it's really well done. It's about high-performance individuals who just kind of tap into different parts of their mind through um, like high-pressure situations. That and just awesome. like, yeah, yeah. Um, at least that's the first part of it. I'm only about halfway through, so still working. Uh, but they talk a little bit about like timelessness and... Um, just the, the value of time and how you can kind of stretch it out to make it a little bit longer. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good book. I need to read that book. <laughs> more time. Are you, are you a big reader? No, no, no. I, I have a tough time with it. Sometimes uh, I read like three pages and then I fall asleep. Yeah. I hear you, I hear you man. What, what do, are you like a video game guy? Are you a internet browsing reddit guy what do you do to pass time you know because obviously as an athlete there's a lot of you run and you rest and mm -hmm. that's a lot of what we do so during your rest what do you do do you do watch netflix what what do you do to pass the time yeah I, I don't spend too much time with technology like i've done a pretty good job of disconnecting it from my life but at the same time, I'm always, okay, that's a lie. I'm always on it because I'm always coaching. <laughs> yeah, I, I, got, I got, my, got my athletes at Mile the Marathon that I'm taking good care of and um, making sure that they're on top of their training and hitting their targets. So that's day to day. And then just, I take care of my own personal business side of athletics as well. I don't run through an agent, so just replying to emails day to day and just making sure that connections and relationships are um, still maintained. That takes a lot of time. And even being like being in Kelowna, I'm away from my best friends back at home, um, my family back in Calgary and my family in Vancouver. So I spend a lot of time on the phone, uh, just connecting with them. So that takes up. Yeah. The whole day is mostly go for a run, coaching emails, go for a run again and then catch up with family friends in the evening on the phone or go down to like the water and just skip rocks. Um, or every once in a while 
I'll throw on TV watching Netflix or Disney Plus, like the Disney Plus TV shows um, for Marvel. They're pretty good. <laughs> and yeah, that's about it. So well, that's I don't good, like, man. yeah, I try and make the most of time, basically. That sounds like a really nice balance. Um, it sounds like you're using the, the useful technology, not so much the distracting technology. Uh, and there's a difference there, right? There's technology that exists to make our life better, and there's technology that existed, I don't know, other stuff. So right on. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you've done, you're in Boston, you're trying to be in your own space, be in your own box. And like you said, the race day comes, um, the race goes on. So as it's unfolding during the races there are decisions that have to be made um calls that have to be done there's instinctual plan the sorry there's like a plan on paper and then there's instinct and racing that happens so were there any were there key moments in the race where you had to make a decision one way or another for example like you know you mentioned the group going one direction and you having the confidence and the patience to say were there certain things that stick out during the course of the race well, there's one moment, like, I think there's about three kilometers into the race. So I totally understand, like, your strategy to get ahead of the pack, because it is easy to get ahead of the pack. And it is easy to just kind of roll through those uh, first, like, seven kilometers. Um, because when I was in that pack, after, like, three kilometers, it was just, like, so tight and so bunched up. And I just never wanted to be in the lead. That's, like, one thing that I kept in my mind. But there's just this one moment where... I just saw this opening in the pack and I just made a little bit of surge to it. Um, but then I overshot it and I just kind of, I ran the tangent really well and I looked over to my side and I saw nobody. <laughs> and then I took a look back and I saw everybody. I'm like, shit, I, I don't want to be here right now at all. So I, I put, I like almost came to a full stop and let the whole pack come back and just jump back into there. So that was like one moment that stood out where I had to make the, big decision but outside of that not not really like scott fobble made a really big move after halfway and kind of broke up our chase pack a bit yeah and he did it was really impressive so he didn't look back um i guess going into the noon hills i had a little bit of like a muscular stitch in my stomach and i had to make an adjustment for that so i i pulled back on the pace a little bit for about two kilometers to settle down uh, to see what it would do. And then at about 35 kilometers, I tried taking in fuel and that caused the stitch to come back. I think just because the fuel was sitting out there all night, it was like pretty cold. So I think things in my stomach were just contracting when I was, when it was presented with cold fuel. So yeah, I had to make like a slight adjustment on course there, but that was about it. Like outside of that, it was just, push, stay on the gas, catch everybody who you see up ahead, uh, don't get past. That was the main thing going through my head is don't get past. And if you do get past, don't let them beat you. Nice. I love that. Um, that's funny. You mentioned the, the cold fuel. I, I remember when I was at Boston and we had like, you know, you have the technical meeting beforehand and they're like, put in your fuel. It's like, don't worry, we'll keep all your fuel in the fridge. And I was like, can you not put it in the fridge? Like, <laughs> I, don't want to be, I don't want my stuff to be cold. I'm not looking for refreshment. I'm looking for fuel, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Funny those little, those little things, the way it played out. Um, so 
did you have any like battles where people were coming up on you? You had to fight them off or you run people down um, in terms of your placing. You know, obviously you finished 15th, but that's going to ebb and flow throughout the race. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have anybody roll up on me. Um, I did roll up on other individuals. Like when I rolled up on Colin Benny, I was pushing pretty good at that point and I wanted to kind of drift off of him for a little bit, but he was just going a little bit too slow. So I just continued pushing along <laughs> uh, and same with the other guys. But one guy that stood out was Reed Fisher. I think we matched up at about kilometer 34. Maybe it was like kilometer 35 or 36, somewhere around there. Um, Reed Fisher and I kind of linked up. He had made a push with some of the other guys and I eventually caught up to him. And then we just stayed together for the rest of the race. Like he made a couple surges. Um, and I didn't really surge at all because I was just more interested in like lifting him up um, to help him along to the finish line. And I don't know if, he, I don't know what his mindset was at that time. If he was like trying to play a little bit of race tactics or not and be competitive with it. But I was just in the mindset where like, we're both hurting. Let's both benefit each other here. Let's both work together and let's both get to the finish line. And with about a mile left in the race, I, it's the point of the race where you go through that little underpass yep. and then you come up and you turn right and then you turn left to go down Boylston. Yeah. When we turned right, I looked over to him and I put my fist out and we gave each other a little fist bump. Nice. And then we just, we rocked it home down Boylston Street and he wasn't going to beat me. I wasn't going to let it happen. <laughs> but <laughs> but we, we worked together for those last like eight kilometers or so. And it was a really positive experience. And like we embrace each other at the end and we both recognize that like we wouldn't have run as fast as we would have if we didn't have each other at that point in the race. So that was a really positive experience to have. That's so cool. That's such a, that's such a cool experience. How like, yeah, you can come together through suffering to help, to help a, a competitor. So that, that's a, that's a really, I, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so when you finish, uh, how how are you obviously physically you're you're thrashed how are you feeling emotionally how are you feeling mentally knowing all that you've come through you have this amazing performance you run a 210 in boston you cross that finish line where where's your head go yeah that oh man that's, that's a good question um so the the day of the boston marathon is actually my grandmother's birthday so to go from the Olympics where she had passed um, to Boston where it's now her birthday. That was like a really powerful tribute for me to her uh, in that moment. So that's, that's kind of where my head went right after the race. It's just like thinking about her. Um, also April 18th is my uncle's birthday and he's like a father to me. So uh, just a lot of emotion there. And I crossed the finish line and picked up my phone, gave him a call. And that was the most I could do on that day. But like it, it went a long way for him and it went a long way for um, for us as a family. So, yeah, I just like for me, running is just like so much more than just running itself. So to include my family and include my friends into that experience as well. That's that's what it is for me. So that's like that's all I think about during those times when it's like getting hard in the race or after the race, if it's a good experience, if it's a bad experience, it's, it's all about like how we, how we come together and then how we lift each other up and grow from it. 
Oh man, that's beautiful. That that's that's really really beautiful, and I and I love that you were able to have that kind of that positive experience and to be able to bring your family. So that's just fantastic, and I think that's probably you know probably a good place to to wrap this up. But before we do get going, what is next? Uh, what, what, what are you looking, what are you looking towards, towards next with your running? Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe Canadian half champs in June. I just started running again, uh, last week. So we'll see how that kind of goes, but I have some family time lined up here in, in the month of May where I'll be down in Oregon to visit um, my cousins and then back in Calgary for a couple of weeks, for Calgary marathon weekend and just visiting friends that I haven't seen in a while. So that's kind of my focus right now. And then see where training goes from there. So we'll see, like maybe in June, uh, I think Ben and I, we're, we're going to try and go out there and just beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> and then from there, yeah, I don't know what the, what the fall looks like yet. I would like to get another marathon, um, but also we have to be strategic with Olympic qualifying, which opens up in January. So just don't just don't know what like the planning of the next two years looks like in terms of opportunities to qualify for that team and how that can influence this fall are you in um are you in 20 minute 5k shape at least yeah i think chase the pace we're going to be good for 20 minute 5ks all right awesome you gotta get this maybe Thanks. maybe even like a 19 minute 5k we'll We'll see. Well, maybe maybe we'll put you to work in two heaps. That'll, that'll be fun. So <laughs> on May 14th, we'll have you here, and we'll have you here in Vancouver, Burnaby, and we'll we'll put you to work there. Um, yeah, man, and and like yeah, like you, you mentioned a little bit briefly before, you are also working with with Miles Marathon as a coach. Um, you know, thank you for all your work there, um, and it's great to have you on the team in that regard. But it's also really awesome to have you as kind of a leader in the Canadian run scene right now and leading the charge yourself and Ben and and I'm really hoping Justin can knock one out of the park here soon too so just having these this group of marathoners showing showing everyone what's up so congratulations on an amazing Boston thank you so much for sharing your story um it's really it's really nice to get that insight and see you know it's it's you're an amazing runner but you're also a really rad dude um so thanks for taking the time today man Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah. All right. Well, there's uh, Trevor Hoffbauer, 210 uh, at Boston, uh, 15th overall, fastest Canadian ever in the Boston Marathon. And, uh, you know, we're proud to, uh, proud to have you as part of the Modern Marathon family, man. All right. So we did it. Are you still there? Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the, the, the latest episode of the Mile to Marathon podcast. Try to keep the, uh, the future episodes a little more concise, but I think that it was worth the time as these two athletes, Trevor and Ella, shared some really cool stories. Hopefully you can learn a little bit from them, get some inspiration, or just be entertained because runners love talking about running. Uh, stay tuned for more Mile Marathon podcasts coming out and hope to see many of you out there at Chase the Pace on May 14th. Keep rolling, folks. Thank you so much. And as always, respect your parents. Thank you.